begin this morning uh, walking through section by section, preaching through the book of Job. Uh, Job is one of the most well-known characters in the Bible for his suffering. I think there is much glory and richness and weighty good things for us in this book in the weeks to come. I would begin this morning with this phrase that you probably know very well and has brought frustration to you in different times in your life, the simple phrase, out of order. We were in urgent care last Friday morning, uh, went to the urgent care clinic. They immediately told Colette they're going to put Jane in an ambulance and take her to Dale Children's Hospital, uh, which they did you know, in a, a wonderfully ambulant fashion about five hours later. We were there in the urgent care, and uh, Jane asked for some water, and uh, the nursing staff was amazing. They had brought water, and I took it upon myself to go get some water. So I looked around. I walked out into the foyer or the waiting room of the urgent care clinic that we had gone to, and I saw the machines, and I, I did what we do in modern times. I have no coins. I got my card, and I scanned it over the machine and it said error. I scanned it again, it said error. I scanned it again, it said error. And I was just a few seconds away from shaking this machine violently and maybe getting on the news. And, you know, I, I imagined my fist going through the glass to get my girl some water. And when I stepped back and I saw a sign in eight and a half by eleven paper out of order which I had not seen when I came to the machine what do you think when you find the world to be out of order you ever come to think that the world itself seems to be out of order it's not working it's not functioning the way that it's supposed to The book of Job is for when the whole world, the fabric of what we think makes the world work, when it seems morally, absolutely out of order, when it makes no sense, when it's like it's broken, when it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, so you don't know if you can trust God. The order of events events in your lives don't seem to make moral sense. They seem more like moral chaos. And the evil that is in the world seems to supersede that which is good and your efforts to do good without any opposition. In the end, you've come to feel like nothing matters. The world's just chaotic. The world's just overrun by evil. Now, we probably wouldn't say that. Probably no one in this room would would say that. I really think the world is only chaos and only ruled by evil. We would probably at least say there's some form of competition, a a war between good and evil forces in the world. We probably wouldn't say the world is chaos and, and evil, but we can mean it when we are exhausted from doing good because the good we do doesn't seem to matter anymore. 
We can mean it when we are beat down by hardships. When doing good doesn't seem to produce what we hoped, we say things like, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if I go to church, doesn't matter if I do good, doesn't matter how I treat my spouse, it doesn't matter what kind of father I am, it doesn't matter what kind of employee I am, because it just, everything's out of order, it doesn't come back to me, it doesn't do what I thought it was going to do. Saying that it doesn't matter is kind of the 21st century way of saying there is no order to the world, it's totally random. I know that one plus one equals two, but when I do good, somehow it turns into trouble. And hardship, and death, and loss, and misery. So we begin to think, we begin to feel, we begin to believe it doesn't matter what I do. That's a sign that you have come to think, potentially believe the world is out of order. Or that there is no order morally to the world. You probably don't get there by reading a book or Articles about philosophy, no, you tried to be good. Then you lost something or someone. You worked your tail off for years only to get looked over for that promotion. You begged God and you searched, but someone else got the guy and got married. Someone else got pregnant. And then there's death. The death of babies and children and grandparents of everyone of almost two people every second 56 million people a year are going to die that's what Job is about when the moral machinery of the universe seems to be out of order it's not just about suffering. Job is not just about pulling up your bootstraps and worshiping God even though you are suffering. It's about when suffering doesn't make sense. When it seems to have no moral cause. When it seems to have no connection to anything you've done, either good or ill in your life. You can look again, Job chapter 1 verse 1. Look at how the book begins. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. What's the first thing that it tells us about Job? That man was blameless and upright. That's the first thing they want to tell us. Blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now this is a setup. This is going to be tested on every single page of this book. A blameless man, upright. Is that true? Can it possibly be true, given everything that happens in the book? Is he blameless? There is an order that follows, that is assumed... In history, for its original readers, in Israel, and even for us, that if you're blameless, then we would expect you should be blessed. 
If you're right before God, God's going to give you good things. That's how the world works, right? Blameless equals blessed in the world. That's how any good Jew would expect to read this in covenant terms. And Job is blessed. That's verses 2 through 4. What follows Job being blameless? His blessing. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. I mean, you want to talk about blessings? Here's the greatest blessing to me as a dad in this passage. Their children getting along. They just eat together and hang out. And then Job loses it all. He loses it all. All the blessing. He loses it all. And his friends are going to show up for 34 chapters and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Something's out of order. We have to acknowledge that some suffering makes sense to us. We don't question all suffering. Someone does bad, we might say, well, he had that coming. We hear about Bernie Madoff being sentenced to 150 years, now dead in prison. We hear of terrorist Osama bin Laden being found and killed. How upset would you be to hear that Vladimir Putin right now had been imprisoned and sentenced to die? How many homeless people do we pass and think... No, they probably got themselves there. This book of Job is not about suffering. Everyone suffers. Rich, poor, young, old. No one escapes suffering in this cursed world. Job is about when the suffering God allows in the world seems out of order. Can God allow the righteous to suffer and can God still be good and just? Glance with me really quickly to Job chapter 32. I know it seems like random right now, but Job chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Job is blameless, and Job loses everything. But I'm going to go ahead and give you a preview for the rest of the book. Job maintains his innocence all through the book, beginning to end. In fact, the very last words of Job, before God speaks, are a very long confession that he can't find any sin in himself. Job maintains his innocence. I did not do any wrong to God. And this is absolutely angering to Job's friends. They go ballistic over the idea that you're suffering and you keep telling us that you didn't do anything wrong. It's like saying, Job, God is punishing you for nothing. And look at what makes them so upset. Their final friend to speak in chapter 32. Oh man, he's a character. These three men, these first three men, ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Everything these, th these three friends said about Job up to chapter 31, they're done. Job just keeps telling them that he didn't do anything wrong. And then Elihu, 
a young gun, the son of Barakel, the Buzide, and the family of Ram, burned with anger. Why? Be- he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. You see that? That's the problem in the book. Job, you, you keep saying that you're innocent. If that's the case, Job, you're justifying yourself and you are saying that God is wrong and that God has sinned by giving you evil and suffering and loss even though you're blameless. And so Elihu sounds good, he sounds wonderful, he sounds great to our ears down here on earth because he is accusing Job of justifying himself rather than saying that God is right. And that's the problem, they can't see, they don't know. Job, you keep saying that you're innocent, God must be unjust for placing you under this suffering. And if that's the case, Job, this is what we're going to see, and it is all the way through his friends. Well, then the whole moral order of the universe must be undone for you. You want to say that you're suffering, you didn't do anything wrong? Well, let's just flip reality on its head so that you can be right and God is wrong. It's a ridiculous, Job. That's what Job's about. What's the answer? It's the answer when the world seems out of order and the righteous and the blameless suffer. Here's what we're going to do today. Three things. One, an overlook of the book of Job. Review a couple of those things we just gave, but overlook the book as a whole, see where we're going. We're going to get some very important, fundamental, simple theology of Job. So an overlook of the book of Job, theology of the book of Job, and then finally, the righteousness of Christ. And that may seem to you like it's out of left field. But finally see how Job is really about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's look first at the overlook of the book of Job. Job comes to us in three settings. You could kind of think about Job. It's really even though it's poetry in its genre, it's wisdom in its genre, it flows like a narrative. It has a progress, it has a plot arc. Things happen in order. You could think of it as a three-act play. There's three main sections in the book of Job. And that first section we've been mostly referring to now is Job 1, 1 through 3. And typically we think about the events of the book of Job as happening in, verses, in chapters 1 through 3. Job is a blameless man and he loses everything. He worships God anyway. That's the main lesson of the book of Job. That's not the main lesson of the book of Job. In fact, if you're thinking about Job doesn't get past chapters 1 through 3, you're probably going to be stuck in moralism, which we'll see later even today. Chapters 1 through 3 are kind of the first act, or you might say the, the setting of the scene for the rest of the book. It's the backdrop for everything else that happens in the book. It's not really the thing that happens. It's the backdrop for the rest of the book. What's the scene? Marilyn read part of it for us this morning. There's a blameless man, and he's blessed. And we see behind the veil as the readers, 
the, the narrative's perspective, the narrator's perspective, that God permits Satan, of all people in the world, to take away the family and the wealth and the personal health of this blameless man. Job has no idea why. No idea why. Job has no vision into the heavens like we do as the readers. And yet we see, as Marilyn read, Job continues to worship God and maintains his innocence from sin, from deserving this kind of evil. His friends in chapters 1 through 3 come to comfort him and sit with him and mourn with him and cry with him. His wife, seeing him in her in his state, encourages him, just go ahead and curse God and die. That's the only thing left to do, just get it over with. Job, in chapter 3, mourns. He regrets the day that he was even born. We'll see how that works more next week into the narrative. That's really Job 1 through 3. It's a unit together. The headline version, if you were to see it in the newspaper, would be, Blessed and blameless man loses everything, maintains innocence, worships God. And people want to read this article. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. Blameless people are supposed to be blessed, not cursed by God. How presumptive of Job to keep worshiping God. He ought to be confessing sin. Well, it's after these first three chapters that the scene is set, that the action in the book really begins to take off. Before we consider Act 2, that second part, let me just encourage you to consider the theology that you ought to come out of this book with, or out of the setting in chapters 1 through 3. Main theme here is that God is entirely sovereign. We begin to see this picked up later in chapter 38 when God speaks. There is no hindrance to God's sovereignty. And there's multiple ways we see this in chapters 1 through 3. God is sovereign over the realm that we see from the realm that we cannot see. And this isn't ever contested by Job's friends or Job. They're fully aware, fully giving God credit that Job's suffering is coming from God. The reader gets perspective that what happens to Job comes from God in heaven giving permission to Satan to do evil things. Point being, God is sovereignly ruling the world that we see from the realm that we cannot see with our eyes. And God is sovereign over Satan. Satan does nothing outside God's permission. You should leave chapters 1 through 3 realizing Satan does not do one thing that God does not allow him to do. God is not in competition with Satan as if they were equal powers, ancient in the world, ancient foes. God made Satan and the angels and the demons and God is sovereign over Satan. Something happened in our house a few weeks ago. One of the... just It was a terrible day. My dog chose to listen to Colette instead of me. She was going outside, which is one of his favorite words to hear. And she got down, put her hands on her knees with her little voice and called him to go outside, and I told him to sit and go get in his house, his mat. And he did not do what I said. Satan is in more trouble than a dog. 
He can't possibly, even when he tries, do anything that is outside of God's sovereignty. God has never given a command or had a will or a desire that Satan did not follow, even when Satan's intentions were evil. God is sovereign, for that matter, over evil. God is sovereign over the evil happenings to Job. Notice Job's friends recognize what happens to Job as evil. In chapter 2, verse 11, when those friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, this is an evil thing. Even Job recognizes it as evil when he is talking to his wife. Shall we not receive good from him? Shall we not also receive evil from him? Job says. It's not like God wants to do, but sometimes evil opposes God. No, the whole point of chapters 1 through 3 is that the evil in this setting is under God's sovereign plan and will. That He knows, that He orders it, that He allows it, that He permits it. And God is sovereign over creation. Notice everything Job loses by means is of people, the Sabaeans in this case, or fire and wind. It's not just a plan and ideas in heaven. God is sovereign over the natural events that take Job's children. God is sovereign over Job. Whatever happens to Job is attributed to Job. Job attributes it to God. His friends attribute it to God. His wife attributes it to God. There is no question that what has come about to Job has come about from God. God is sovereign entirely and Job was right to worship him in his suffering recognizing God's sovereignty he has given he has taken away what can I say God is absolutely sovereign let me tell you something as pastor for going on 15 years now one of the things I wish I could just shake into people is that you have no idea how sovereign God is Our complaining and our mopiness. Uh, me too. God is so sovereign. And our worship and our faith can be so weak and low and we shift into despair and we get distraught and we get confused because we don't know or because we forget or because we don't want to admit it. That God is so free and sovereign to do everything in His wisdom and in His absolute power. When we come out of Job chapter 1 through 3, that's part of what the scene is trying to set for us, that this is not in any way some accident in Job's life that we don't know where it comes from. It has God. Now, how do we think about chapters 1 through 3? They're, they're the act 1. Maybe you can think of, acts, of chapters 1 through 3 this way. I'm sure some of you have seen some Star Wars movies at some point. What's the first thing in every Star Wars movie? I, I think it is. I've only seen a few. It's the setting of the scene for the rest of the, the movie with those famous yellow letters crawling up the screen, disappearing into the galaxy. That's how chapters 1 through 3 work in Job. This is telling us, this is what's going on. This is where the story that you're about to read is planted in this setting. 
This is the yellow Star Wars crawl letters for Job. Chaos has disrupted the order of the universe. A blameless man, highly blessed by God, suddenly loses every possession, even his own health, by forces of evil. Having lost everything he loves, the man must now face his greatest challenge, his friends. And then chapters 1 through 3 crawl into the universe, and the story picks up there, Act 2, chapters 4 through 37. Act 2 in Job is chapters 4 through 37. This is the debate between Job and his friends, and even the friends between themselves at times. Now, how important do you think this section of the book, when you pick up Job, how important do you think the debate between the friends are? Or is. It takes up 80% of the book. The debate between friends about what's going on here is 80% of the, It's not God talking that's 80% of the book. It's not Satan taking away more things in chapters 4 through 37. 80% of the book is trying to figure out why did this happen? How could this possibly make sense? What Job is about, the action of the book, is that long discussion about whether or not the world is actually out of order. Has the world spun into chaos? Has evil superseded God and His intentions? Has Job just lost his mind? See how the conversation quickly turns from comfort to inquisition and accusation as we switch from Act 1 to Act 2. Go back in Job and look at chapter 2. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, and see Job's friends show up and comfort him. All right, this is a, a good example of, of how to comfort people in their suffering and in their sorrow. Job chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. Still kind of in Act 1, so the scene's being set. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Don't talk to him. Let the man have a moment. And then we get the wife, and then we get Job's mourning, and then we get Job's friends in chapter 4. This is the beginning of Acts 2. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, Job 4, 1 through 6, the Temanite answered and said, if, if, if we could just get a word, if it just, we could just venture a word with you, will you be impatient? I'm just, I just wanna, it's, just, it's just like that friend who just says, hey, can I just say one thing? And you know it's going to be like the thing. Will you be patient? Yet, yet who can keep from speaking? Oh, I, just, I can't help but say it, Joe. I just I have to say it. Behold, you've instructed many. And you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. And you have made firm the feeble knees. You've helped people in their suffering. But now it has come to you. And you are impatient. That's how he refers to Job's mourning. Job wishing that he was dead and had never been born. Now you're impatient, Job. All the suffering you've talked about, now it touches you and you are dismayed. Listen to this question. Verse 6. Is not your fear of God your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? Now to us that might potentially sound like an encouragement. Hey Job, isn't your fear of God your confidence? And isn't it your, your hope? 
But it is not a hopeful question. It's an accusation in the form of a question. Job, why are you so sad? Don't you trust God? Is there something that you're not telling us, Job? This question is drenched in condescension and presumption. Listen to the next two verses, Job 4, 7-8. through 8. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? No innocent people ever die, Job. Or where was the upright, the one who is blameless, where was he cut off from God? doesn't happen, Job. That's not how the world works, Job. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap the same. Job. So enough crying about this. Look, Job, you say that you're innocent, but that's not what we've seen, how we've seen the world work. Here's the order of the universe, Job. You sow trouble, you reap trouble. You're reaping trouble. Job, don't mourn about the day of your birth and quit all the crying about how God's being somehow unfair to you. What trouble did you sow, Job? Tell us. And on and on and on it goes to chapter 37. Argument after argument after argument, reason after reason, trying to help Job see. No, 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 Job, when I say it like this, you must realize, when I say it like this, you must realize that you actually did something wrong. The main thrust of the book is Job's friends in Act 2 responding to the scene that was set in Act 1, chapters 1 through 3. In particular, Job's mourning and Job's going on about how terrible this is. Go back and read it, chapter 3 through 4. This is Job's response to his suffering. Let the day on which I was born perish. And the night that I said a, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. I mean, that's pretty, pretty, pretty gloomy. And Job's friends hear that and say, wait a second, you should be confessing sin. You should be mourning. Your, your mourning isn't tricking anybody. You should be confessing sin, Job. And they spend the next 33 chapters interpreting why these evil events actually did happen, trying to get Job to confess his sin. And that's the rising action of the book. The main question really is not, did God do this? Everyone, Job's friends, attribute this to God. Job attributes this to God. The question is, did Job deserve this? Is this just of God to do? Listen to the argument laid towards Job in Job 18. You can begin to see at this point, as you might if you are reading along, begin to tire of the conversation. Job's friends tell him, Job, how long will you hunt for words? You keep finding new ways to claim your innocence. How long are you going to keep this up? Consider, and then we will speak. Job, why do you treat us like cows? Why are we stupid in your sight? Do you think we're dumb, Job? Look what they say in verse 4. You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Job, do you think we're dumb? 
You think we should just overturn the entire moral order of the universe so that we can all say, God is giving you suffering even though you didn't do anything wrong. Blameless and blessed people don't suffer, Job. That's not the way the world works, Job. If you maintain your innocence, you're saying the world is out of order and, as we read earlier, you're saying God is not just. Job's not just a book about suffering. It's about when suffering makes no sense whatsoever to us in our perspective. That's act two. The debate over Job's righteousness and why this terrible suffering is happening. Act one, blameless, blessed man suffers. Act two, Job's friends come and say, this makes no sense. Job's hiding something. Act three, chapters 38 through 42, God speaks. God speaks. After chapter and chapter of presuming about God and questioning God and debating about God, God speaks. All this talking and talking by men, and then chapter 38, verse 1, just a bursting refreshment on the scene. We're reading through the book. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. By this time, if you've made your way through those 33 chapters of debate and argument and assumptions, you are desperate for God to speak. Let me ask you, have you come to that place in your life today? God, the world seems out of order. What do you say? God, I want to hear from you. I don't know what in the world is going on. Nothing makes sense. There's out of order signs everywhere. Why is this happening? What is going on? Oh, how refreshing, even if it is convicting to Job and to us, to hear from God. Who are you listening to? Who do you want to hear from? Stop looking for truth and memes and gifts. Quit reading the Bible with one eye open to the Bible and the other to the Enneagram or your Zodiac or the fortune cookies with the other eye. I mean, I trust God, but isn't it interesting what this online character generator said about me? No, it's actually not very interesting. I read this New York Times bestseller. I read this article. I heard this song. Whose voice are you listening to? Who? Everyone listens to someone. Even if it's yourself. If it's just you. Even if you're the only one you listen to. You're listening to yourself. Pretty early on in the book of Job, Job, in the conversation with his friend, Job explains that he'll be taking his case up with God. He's not interested in mere debates about men by men. In Job's first response in chapter 5, his first response to that first friend in chapter 5, verse 8, Job says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. I'll let God be the final answer here. 
I'll wait to hear from God, friends. When it comes to understanding the way the world works, the meaning and the purpose of suffering, when it comes to understanding why the world works the way that it works, the book of Job has a resounding message. God speaks the final word. Both in terms of the argument, who has the last word in the world? Who is the sovereign? Who is ordering the world? Who is guiding the world? Whose wisdom has structured the world? God. But also in the structure of the book, there's this argument going down here below the clouds on the earth about men, who's guilty, and why are all these things happening? God breaks through and speaks as the last, one of the last things that happens in this book. That's how Job works. Blameless and blessed man suffers. Act 1. Act 2, Job's friends, this makes no sense. Job's hiding something. Act 3, God settles it. God speaks, God settles it. There are a lot of things that we learn about God and from God when we will get there in chapters 38 through 42. But I want to go ahead and set you up for what is the main meaning for us throughout the entire book of Job. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now if you look on your worship guides, you see a subtitle there, the Sovereignty of God over Chaos and Evil. Um, I'm just not very good at titling things. You, you could also say an optional title is the sovereignty of God, and the righteousness of Christ. You could, you could say that as equally. If you have Job 1 through 42, the whole book, but you don't have Jesus, we get a version of moralism. Moralism means you do right things and good things happen to you. Job gets all of this stuff back in the end. Isn't that great? even multiplied. But if you have moralism, we are all forever stuck in deserving justice for what we've done. And our sin deserves the judgment of God. In Job, we have a man who is blameless, yet he suffers the tragedy at the hands of Satan under the sovereignty of God. And in the book of Job, this makes no sense. Job's friends can't fathom this as a possible scenario in the universe. Job is blameless before God, yet he is suffering at God's hand. How is that even possible? And here's where the New Testament is pointing us. The only way this is actually really possible among man in a true, absolute, pure, blameless obedience before God, the only way that is possible is when God becomes a man. The only way that's really possible is Jesus Christ. How could we possibly believe that Jesus himself was without sin? Not only did Jesus profess it with his mouth, Jesus came to the earth born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came, he came commanding the waves, healing the sick, casting out demons, multiplying food to fill masses. Jesus prophesied about his own death and his resurrection. He died on the cross just as he said he was going to die. He rose from the dead just as he said he was going to raise. Then he ascended into the heavens 
as we've said this morning, reminding us he will come again. How can a man truly be without sin only if he is God incarnate? And only Christ can truly be good like God is good. Job is setting up for us this idea in the history of redemption that God might have something in His plan where a righteous one dies. And it doesn't make any sense unless you get God's sovereign perspective. The gospel, the good news to us in the New Testament is there is a man from heaven and his name is Jesus and that man is blameless and upright and he feared God and he turned away from evil, yet he died. Remember, Job almost died. Jesus died on the cross for the sin of others and he rose from the dead that whosoever believes in him would be forgiven from their sins and not bear on them the present or eternal wrath of of God. Let me just tell you something, friends. You feel like your suffering means the world is out of order? You feel like your suffering means the world is just messed up here? Look to the cross. Look to the cross and see the sinless Son of of God suffering the shedding of his blood in the world for your sake that's out of order in our eyes why does this matter to us in our suffering we have no righteousness to cling to. Each and every one of us, if we honestly assess ourselves and the rest of mankind, we should actually agree with Job's friends that this doesn't make sense. Job, you've done something to deserve this. When the world seems out of order, when it looks like the good are suffering and the wicked get to play and have fun, what righteousness can, can we hold in order to try to sift through and make sense of what is happening in the world? None of our own. None. None of us make it past chapter 4 in Job's arguments with his friends. None of us get to chapter 37. We're sinners. We're, we're sinful. None of us are blameless in God's eyes. None of us are upright. We don't fear God. We don't turn away from evil. We've probably turned to evil thoughts on the way to church this morning or during the sermon. So in what seems like a disordered world of suffering by chaos and evil, what is the thing that we can cling to through it all? It's not our righteousness. Not our righteousness before God that we can say this doesn't make sense. I don't know why God's doing this. I, I haven't done anything wrong. No, we've all done something wrong. We've all inherited sinful nature from Adam. We've all sinned ourselves and broken the holiness of God. Sinned against the image of God in which He created us to be holy and blameless imaging Him. We've all distorted and broken that. We are out of order the only 
righteousness that we can... When we go to cling for our own righteousness, like we're looking for a mast in the ship to hold on in the order of chaos in the world and suffering, and you go to, go to grasp your own righteousness, it'll just disappear like a fog. You can't, you can't get a hold of it. Your righteousness isn't there like that before God. The only righteousness in the world in the midst of suffering that is good and perfect before God is the righteousness of Jesus Himself. How tragic to spend our lives grumbling, debating, wondering, sick over whether or not God hates us. How tragic to die and enter fearing that God has gotten back at you, that He's getting back at you, that that something really bad for you is just around the corner for you because of your sin. And God does not desire His children to live this way. He does not desire that we should live in fear. Why? Not because of your righteousness, but because you can cling to Jesus' righteousness and His suffering. How do you get that righteousness? How can Jesus' righteousness become yours? How can God see us as righteous even though we are not? Paul says it like this in Romans 5, 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That's through, through Adam. One man's sin led to all of our sin. But much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and, listen, the free gift of righteousness. How much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Righteousness is given. It's given. It's a free gift of righteousness through Jesus on the cross for you. One pastor said at T4G years ago, Most people believe that their problem is something that is happening to them and their solution is going to be found within. In other words, they have an alien problem, suffering, something's going on that needs to be solved with an inner solution when the gospel says that we have an inner problem and the only solution is an alien righteousness. We should not be asking, why did I get this suffering like Job? Why is my life like this? Why are all the bad things happening to me? We ought to be asking, how can I get a righteousness in my heart and in my soul and my mind that will protect me from the judgment that I deserve? Job is showing us that in God's plan, there is a man who is righteous in every absolute way, and he died on the cross, God's Son, God Himself, for you. So that you could get His righteousness in God's eyes. Cling to the righteousness of Christ who suffered for your sin and by resting in Jesus' righteousness, you don't have to wonder if the world is out of order. You don't have to be dismayed at the tragedies and wonder who's to blame. You can rest knowing that Jesus suffered for your sin. His blood paid for your sin. His righteousness is a gift to you to be received by faith. You don't have to go through life. You don't have to go into eternity fearing that God is out to get you because of the bad things you have done. Oh, we deserve it. We don't deserve another breath in our lungs. 
But it was in God's sovereign plan to send His blameless Son to suffer on the cross, the blameless one suffering on our behalf. The ever world has looked out of order, it was then. The righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, the Christ, dying on an enemy's cross. Oh, Jesus, He must be cursed. He must have really done something wrong. Jesus must be the worst. No, Jesus died to give His righteousness to who all would receive it as a gift by faith. In all of your suffering, what do you cling to? You can cling to your own righteousness. How can we sift our way through what feels like chaos and disorder in the world? Clinging around of good and evil in our lives. Cling to the righteousness of Christ, His suffering for you. What trial are you suffering? What sickness are you suffering? What death have those experienced around you? Christ has suffered for your sins. So that whenever we are suffering, whenever we deserve to suffer in the future, whatever we might suffer this week, we, we don't have to fear God's getting back at us. That He doesn't love us. God has justified Himself in Jesus dying for our sins. Because of Christ, we do not have to fear God's wrath. Because we are blameless? No. We rest in the righteousness and the suffering of Christ. Let's pray. Father, in this moment of response, we ask that you would help us be aware in our hearts of sin, weakness, of low faith, and how you might see us walk in trust and obedience this week. Father, what could be said again except to pray what we have sung? My heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, all-surpassing gift of righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. In his name, amen.